You are listening to the Spiritual Exercises podcast. My name is Rachel Amaday. I'm so glad you're here, and I apologize. This particular Bible study was supposed to go out days ago, but we had some stuff go on with our our old dog. We have this great, wonderful older dog named Mohican, and um, he is approaching 14 years of age and has just been having some health struggles that we needed to take care of the last few days. Um, and I'm hoping that he's he seems to be doing better. So um, you could be praying for him, honestly. I know he's lived a long, wonderful life. God's blessed us. But he has been the best dog. And I am, my heart's just going to be broken when he does pass because he has, he has kept me. You know, it's just incredible how wonderful the you know, the animal kingdom. I mean, how awful in some ways too, right? But how incredible it is that we as humans get to enjoy God's nature and that he puts these other types of friends by our sides, um, other types of creatures that we can just love and enjoy. And um, Mohican has been one of those. Actually, he's been the best dog I've ever had and probably will ever have. I can't imagine. I know everybody loves their dogs, but I've had many dogs and he's probably the smartest creature I've ever been around, one of the most intuitive, able to figure things out that no dog ever should be able to, um, almost spiritual in a way, like he has he has had the, some of the funniest experiences in his life. Anyways, this is not the podcast Bible study for today. We're not talking about my dog, good grief. But um, anyways, that's what I've been up to the last few days, so I apologize. I'm late in sending out my weekly Bible study. I am starting a series with you all. I hope this is going to be of interest to you. I want to talk about what is hell according to scripture. Now, why? You know, by the way, I don't think scripture focuses a lot on hell or on demons. It, it's not one of the hot topics in the Bible. And so, um, it's really, it really doesn't need to be our main focus, right? It really doesn't need to be um, the most important aspect of how we live. We need to be focused on what we're doing here and now, right? And how to become the best people we can be here and now and how to have a relationship with the Lord here and now and not be obsessed with the afterlife. But here's where I think that understanding a little bit more about what the Bible actually says about hell and, and just the afterlife in general can be helpful to the believer. I think that if we're not accurately representing the character of God when we preach hell and when we preach death, uh, because we do, you know, this is one of the main points, right, of salvation is you will spend eternity with God instead of right? Instead of, hey, you're going to spend eternity in hell, you're going to spend eternity separate from God, whatever your perspective is, the main concept that we tell people about why, why to meet Yeshua and why to walk with him is because this life's actually short and we want to see them forever, not just here. And it really matters the choice you make here. And so there's an aspect to this that we should try to get right and try to be accurate about. And if we're not, I truly believe we are maligning God's character. When we make him out to be 
as I think there's some some ideas in Calvinism and other um, in Catholicism, when we make him out to be a vengeful, malicious force that wants people to be tortured for eternity in these really with these really strange ideas that would allow for maybe Satan to be the head of hell for eternity, all these weird ideas that kind of have gotten passed down over the years. When we give people this idea about God's character, you know, honestly, wouldn't you kind of be like, I'm not so interested in that sort of a God. That's not to say that God doesn't punish people. And that's not to say that hell doesn't exist. I want to talk about what it actually is, what it means in the Bible. And there's going to be more questions than answers probably at the end of it. But if we have that much better of a framework, perhaps we'll be a little bit better describing the real reasons why you want to not only meet Yeshua, but walk with him. And it's not just to avoid hell, okay? It's really not. It's because it's the fullness of who you are created to be. It's because you want to be the bride of Christ, right? Which we'll end up talking about eventually as well. It's got to be because you love the Lord. You love him and who he is and his kingdom and the future he's building. And you want to be a part of it. You want to be part of it now, Okay, so listen, I hope I haven't scared you off because I'm not giving you the answers yet. In fact, as I started to dig into and research this, I am finding absolutely there are more questions than answers because there is a lot of doctrine that has been passed down for thousands of years on this. And there is also a lot of really conflicting ideas and opinions. And so we can wrestle and grapple with those and try to come to, you know, our own best conclusions. But mainly I want to give you a framework with which to speak to others about this and about the afterlife and about who is God at the end of all things and what is he going to do. So today I wanted to start with how we came to our current Oh, mythologies, I guess, or ideas about hell. How did we get to what we currently kind of have in Christianity and just in modern society? So we're going to start with Catholicism just because I think that would be the main place that the church would have received or been passed down, had passed down some of these ideas. And I'm going to go straight to some of their sources. And then we're going to discuss some other ancient religions and what their ideas about death and hell were, including some of Judaism. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's just dig in. Okay. I'm going to go straight to fromcatholic.com. It says this, but the eternal nature of hell is stressed in the New Testament. For example, in Mark 9, 47 to 48, Jesus warns us, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And in Revelation 14, 11, we read, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Hell is not just a theoretical possibility. Jesus warns us that real people go there. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. End quote. Math, that's Matthew seven thirteen to fourteen. Catholic.com continues, the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, the teaching of the Church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. 
The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs, end quote. All right, in Greek mythology, Hades is the god of the dead, and he rules. So we, we did, that. that's kind of the basics, by the way, sorry. That's the basics, very basics of Catholicism, okay? Um, now, there's... There's some, we'll get into some more ideas in a moment, but that's kind of the basics. In Greek mythology, Hades is the god of the dead, and he rules over the underworld. And we'll get into some more Greek mythology as well, but uh, Hades is the god in Greek. In Roman mythology, his name is Pluto. And according to history.com, and I quote, the idea that the devil governs hell may have come from a poem by Dante Alighieri, The Divine Comedy, published in the early 14th century. In it, God created hell when he threw the devil and his demons out of heaven with such power that they created an enormous hole in the center of the earth. The Bible doesn't describe the devil in detail. Early artistic interpretations of the divine comedy featuring shocking images of the devil and his demons inflicting almost unimaginable human suffering only emboldened people's thoughts about hell and the devil. And by the end of the Middle Ages, the devil had taken on the appearance of the horned, trident-wielding figure with hooves or feet and a long tail, an image that has endured to modern times, end quote. And, you know, the trident image, you know, comes from some other gods that we have in ancient Greek and Roman mythology. Um, I'm trying to, oh, well, it'll come to me later. Also, I just have to say, the Bible is very clear that Satan, Lucifer, or in the very, very ancient um, language, he was called Enlil, he was considered absolutely gorgeous. Okay, this idea that the devil is this red guy and he's kind of creepy looking and weird looking. And definitely if he were in the room with you, you would leave the room. Uh-uh. No, he's a beautiful creature. The Bible says, says he was filled full of wisdom. God granted him not only fullness of beauty, but fullness of wisdom, which is a little terrifying. So he contains massive amounts of wisdom and he is massively beautiful according to scripture. So... The Divine Comedy, uh, I've read most of it. I have to say it's definitely probably where we get some of our concepts of hell and stuff. None of that can be found in scripture. It's very, very, it's it's an interesting psychological study. Uh, Not a very good, uh, if you're looking for accuracy about what the Bible has to say, not an accurate location to go. So don't, if you're looking for an explanation of biblical version of hell, don't go to Dante, okay? Um, Let's keep going. In the Old Testament, the idea of hell is presented as a location called Sheol. This is a place that contains a location of waiting for those who love the Lord and those who do not, who reside in a specific location called Gehenna, or often translated as hell. According to the Catholic register, Gehenna refers to a valley where, in the centuries before Christ waste, the carcasses of animals and even the bodies of executed criminals were thrown. Continually burning fires were necessary in the valley to consume the waste and eliminate the odor of putrefaction. It was also associated with the worship of false gods and was considered a place of abomination, end quote. So Gehenna was basically a giant trash dump, and it's kind of what Yeshua references in some places, like you're just going to go outside the city. You're going to be in the trash dump instead of in the city. Um, The Christian concept of hell built on the notion of Gehenna 
became a place of pain, punishment, and exclusion from the kingdom of God. Dating from the first and second centuries, the authors of the Gospels describe Gehenna, or what we have come to call hell, as the underground pit, the furnace of fire, and the place of eternal torture for the damned. Several hundred years later, Augustine suggested that this underground pit was populated by flesh-eating animals. Thomas Aquinas postulated that the tortures of hell were physical as well as spiritual, and that real fire played a part in them. And many writers and painters throughout the Middle Ages depicted the torments of hell with such specific detail that one would think they had been there. Dante's Inferno, again, is famous for his hair-raising and horrific detailed descent into the depths of hell. Okay. So while the New Testament has hell as a place of everlasting damnation, as early as the third century, some Christian thinkers thought that banishment to hell may not be eternal. They believed the fires of hell were purifying and could contribute to the afterlife, education, and purification of the soul. Although this notion was denounced by the church at the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553, the notion of refining fire in the afterlife persisted. So the Christian tradition of reciting prayers and celebrating masses for the deceased to aid them in the afterlife did not fit with the concept of hell as eternal. In the establishment of All Souls Day at the beginning of the 11th century by St. Odilio focused further attention on the ability of the faithful through prayer and almsgiving to help the departed who had not fully atoned for their transgressions before death. Okay, so this is, this is that kind of concept in Catholicism of praying for the dead and this idea of purgatory um, as well. So hundreds of years later, the theology of penance and purification was extended to the deceased and purgatory was formally recognized as part of Catholic doc- doctrine. Positioned between the two extremes of heaven and hell, the first ecumenical council of Lyon defined purgatory in 1254 as a place of transitory fire where minor sins can be cleansed. So purgatory means to purge, actually. So this is the opportunity for them to purge themselves of these sins. And then they can go to heaven, especially if they're being prayed for or whatever else goes on with payments to the Catholic Church. All right. So we have some really interesting ideas about the afterlife already going on between Catholicism and Protestantism. We have not gotten into the Bible because today's podcast, I'm not going to do the detail in the Bible just yet. That's going to be, I think it's going to take me probably two or three in a series to get to every single time the word hell has been translated. Um, I noticed there are like 16 to 20 different words that are used in Hebrew and Greek that were translated as just hell. And so that's interesting because each of those words actually have unique meanings and kind of different concepts behind them. But we just in our English get the word hell. And so there are some problems with that actually, because that would make us think that all of these locations that are being listed are the same place and they're not, or that the same people go to them. And that's not the case either. So we'll get to dig into that. But today I'd like to keep going What other ancient ideas about death are maybe playing into what we think about death now and what a lot of different religions think about death? So we've got to go back. Let's go back a long time to Mesopotamia 
And um, I just got a little bit of information on some of these ancient cultures. But in Mesopotamia, hell or, or the afterlife was basically a distant land of no return. And then there's this Epic of Gilgamesh, which I've always wanted to study more deeply. I haven't gotten to study it. I know kind of some of the basics of it yet. But um, in that ep- epic, hell is a house of darkness where the dead drink dirt and eat stone. And we we come across these epic, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's almost like the story of these gods, you know, and this is how this location in this story is described. If you go to ancient Egypt, we see that they were, I mean, if you know anything about the ancient Egyptians, they were obsessed with death. I mean, it was so much about the afterlife and so much about how you were buried and what you were buried with, right? So the Book of the Dead and other books describe journeys through 12 zones of the underworld and then the ultimate judgment of Osiris kind of interesting because in Dante's Inferno, they're traveling through these different zones, these different locations. So for some odd reason, I I have that connection in my head. But um, in ancient Egypt, also the deceased needed magical and physical powers to appear successfully before Osiris. So rituals and rites uh, were conducted to assure the dead would have all the magical rites that they needed. And physical items were left with them as well to take to Osiris. So um, This is why you kind of see the tombs the way that they are in Egypt and just all of their mythology around the underworld or the afterlife, as we would call it. In ancient Greece and Rome, we kind of previously mentioned this, Hades was the underworld god and he embodied death itself. He was death. The house of Hades was a labyrinth of dark and joyless halls. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, it says this, In the late Archaic period, however, Greek traditions began to envision a greater divergence of paths in the afterlife. The mysteries of Demeter at Eleusis, among other esoteric cults, claimed that adherents would enjoy a heavenly immortality, while those outside the cult would sink into the gloom of Hades. The cult of Dionysus represented Hades as a place of torment from which only initiates could escape. There, according to some ancient traditions, Persephone punished humankind for the death of her son Dionysus. The Orphic movement, so called for its association with the hero Orpheus, who ventured into Hades and returned to Earth, spun vivid accounts of judgment, retribution, and metempsychosis. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to have to look that up later. Adherents were taught that life on the sorrowful, weary wheel of recurring birth and death itself was a kind of hell. Gold tablets found buried in graves throughout Greece and southern Italy, dating back to the 4th century BCE, offer an Orphic account of the geography of the other world, warning the deceased to shun the waters of forgetfulness and to recite the passwords that admit one to the company of the blessed. Philosophers and moralists such as Plato and Cicero found in these myths and mysteries rich material for reflection on the nature of justice and the value of disciplined detachment from the material world, end quote. In ancient Greece and Rome, we also have Virgil, who is a Roman author of the Aenid. He describes hell as like the lake. Um, There's a torture area called Tartarus. And then there's a heaven-like location as well for the blessed called the Elysian Fields. Um, So Greece and Rome, you know, we have a little more understanding of what they believed about the afterlife and hell. We have this term Hades, which is reflected in scripture as well. Um, Hades obviously being a location, not a god, but same word. And we're going to come across that word later. In ancient Iranian and Zoroastrian traditions, hell presided over, was presided over by the first victim of death, Yima. 
demons who dwell there torture sinners. In the end, hell is destroyed, but there's a judgment where the dead have their deeds weighed, and heaven, hell, and a limbo exist for those who pass through the judgment. So a little bit like Catholicism, actually, in that regard. In Judaism, Sheol is a place completely separated from the living and from God, although God oversees all of it and can restore the dead to life from it. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, again, I quote, at least in the post-exilic portions of the Hebrew Bible, which are those that were written after Babylonian captivity, death does not hold the same fate for all. The unjust, the improperly buried, and the untimely dead endure the misery of Sheol. But for those who die in God's favor, the natural bitterness of death is mitigated by reunion with their ancestors. Late prophetic books concerned with the vindication of God's justice warn of a coming day of the Lord, in which the wicked will be burned up like stubble. The corpses of God's enemies will suffer endless corruption, and evildoers who have died will be resurrected to shame and everlasting contempt while the just enjoy the fulfillment of God's promises. In some post-biblical Jewish writings, Gehenna, the incineration ground where children had once been sacrificed to the god Moloch, emerges as a realm of post-mortem punishment more like hell than Sheol. In Gehenna, the unjust dead would suffer a fiery torment of duration and severity proportionate to their crimes. During the period from the Maccabee Wars to the compilation of the Mishnah, writers increasingly speculated about the afterlife, producing apocalypses that featured dramatic visionary journeys through heaven and hell. The first book of Enoch, an important collection of pseudo-epigraphic revelations, describes in vivid detail both the eternal abyss of fire where fallen angels will be imprisoned after the final battle and the plague and pain to be visited upon wretched souls. At the same time, Jewish philosophers and mystics emphasized the spiritual character of the future life, interpreting Gehenna as a redemptive fire which burns away the soul's impurities in order to restore its original perfection. A spiritualized conception of the soul's journey after death flourished alongside the rabbinic doctrine of resurrection and judgment at the end of time, and the two models were often combined. The focus of traditional Jewish eschatology, now as in the past, is on the messianic age when the world will be remade into a dwelling fit for the divine presence. To forfeit one's share in the world to come is the greatest of all calamities to which hellfire, whether physical or spiritual, pales in comparison. So those are kind of some ideas. I didn't do all the ancient cultures or all the other cultures out there, but there's a lot of crossover in perspectives and ideology between all of those with and in regards to hell. And whenever that happens, I I, I sometimes have some um, curiosity. Number one, are, are some of these traditions so old, these ideas so old that they were understood by Adam and Eve or they were understood so long ago that they were shared with the very first people like the Cain and Abel's on earth? And then those ideas were shared, but they get twisted, you know, as they go into different cultures and different peoples and over time. Or is there a great deception that has taken place where, you know, I think the principalities of the earth have been able to put information into different cultures and different people's minds that's somewhat similar, but that is not actually accurate to what the Lord is going to do or is doing or what hell really is, um, and are using that information to turn people away from the Lord or turn people into um, not quite biblical beliefs and not quite biblical ways of living. I, you know, I don't know. 
I don't have all the answers just yet. Like I said, I've been researching and the more I research, the more questions I've had, which makes me scared that I'm not going to be ready for all of these podcasts that I'm about to do on this. But I really got inspired because um, just in looking at the word hell in scripture, I realized in the context that that word comes up that we may have some things very, very wrong. And those wrong teachings are actually going to malign God's character. And I don't want to do that. And I don't want my friends to do that because that's a violation of the third commandment. You know, you're taking the Lord's name of vain. When you are calling out something in God's character that isn't there, you are dragging his name through the mud. And I want to make sure that we understand God is a fair and just judge not to mention all of his great judicial gifting is measured and balanced with mercy. And so um, there is separation from God. Yes, there is punishment. Yes, there is judgment. Yes. But what do those things actually look like and mean? And how can we better describe them to people when we're describing our faith and our beliefs about why we follow Jesus? And what it means to be in God's family. And listen, what's kind of scary too, I don't think believers really understand this. The church gets judged and believers get judged. We have our works judged by the Lord. And it's so funny. I hear believers say this. I've even said this. Gosh, I hope I just, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd love to just be a toilet cleaner in heaven. You know, I don't need a great position. I just want to be there. I, I understand why, why we say that, right? We say that because we're just going to be so grateful that God was merciful enough to save us by his blood. However, can I just push back on those sorts of phrases a little bit? Don't you kind of want to walk with Yeshua during his kingdom reign? Don't you want to be with him? Don't you want to be next to him? Don't you want to be in the new Jerusalem, like with God? Wouldn't it be great if we kind of decided, no, I'd love a position in the kingdom where I'm closer, right? I'm closer and I'm closer. I want to so walk with the Lord that he does say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not, hey, you know, you're saved, but you didn't do much with your salvation. So your your job is toilet cleaner. <laughs> I mean, what a strange attitude to have towards your eternal position, especially if you love God. And it's a good reminder for me, I really do love God and I want to please him with what I do on the earth. And I'm terrified of the moment where he's going to burn up all my works because there's probably not going to be a lot there. If I, if, if I died today, there's not enough there. I don't want to be done. I want to do more good in his name. You know, again, another thing a lot of Christians don't understand. Yeah, you might be saved, but your works still get judged. Why? Because God is just. He's righteous. And he has told us, Jesus said, whoever teaches my ways, right, and lives them, teaches and does them, will be greatest in the kingdom. But anyone who even relaxes the most simple of his laws and does that, teaches others to do so, will be least in the kingdom. Jesus said there's a hierarchy in the kingdom and he encourages you to go for a higher position, right? He's encouraging you there saying, listen, do my commands. Don't relax my laws. 
Come on, come be part of who I am so that you can have a higher position in the kingdom. You can be closer to what I'm doing. And so that's all stuff that's going to happen in the future and the afterlife. And I don't think a lot of believers have a very clear view of that. Not that we're going to get a perfect view, but what if we could get a little more clarity? Wouldn't it help us in our testimony and also just be that great reminder of how we want to walk with the Lord? So let's dig in. It's going to be a tumultuous subject for sure. It's going to be one of those ones where I think you're going to have to hold on to your seat a little bit, or you might have to sit down every once in a while and take a moment and stop the podcast and think about what's been shared. Um, And don't be afraid to Uh, Don't be offended. Let's put it that way too. What if we took the filter of offense off of our eyes and we said, I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to see if what she's saying is true. So that is the adventure we're about to undertake here on this podcast. Um, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're blessed. For those of you that are supporting me every month, thank you. It's made such a huge difference. It's been such an encouragement. Uh, You do not know how you have blessed and encouraged this uh, just simple woman's heart. So thank you for that and for, um, and for listening. Okay. I'll be back next week.